there and welcome to City Breaks London episode 27. I'm Marion Jones. This is the very last episode in the London series and quite a different one, something a little bit special I thought to finish with. We have been during the series, I hope you'll agree, all over London, covered I think all the big hitters, your Buckingham Palace and your Tower of London, met lots and lots of the most interesting people, the two Samuels, Pepys and Johnson, Queen Victoria, Dick Whittington and his cat, etc, etc. So how, I thought, to end the series? And the idea I've come up with is to create a bucket list for London. Not my bucket list, you understand. I've taken advice from other people who've written London bucket lists. And I've been in touch with a number of people who have a city breaks mindset, if there is such a thing. So interested in history and the stories behind the places that we visit. And I've put it all together so that I can offer you lots and lots of ideas for possibilities on your own London bucket list. First up, of course, I went to Googling and found a couple of London bucket lists which I really liked. The first one was on a website called www.aworldinreach.com. By the way, this might be the moment to say that, of course, all the website addresses will be in the show notes. The A World in Reach website is run by Sydney and it bills itself as, quote, a travel blog for college students and young explorers who want to see the world. There are many, many things on it, but I honed in, of course, on the ideas for things to do in London. When I looked at the list, I found things I certainly should have included and didn't, so I thought I might start by mentioning those. The London Eye on the South Bank, where you can go on a 30-minute flight and get 360-degree views of London using what Sydney calls an interactive iPad-style guide to help you figure it all out, and from which you can see, quote, the meandering path of the River Thames, Big Ben and Westminster in the foreground, City of London skyscrapers like the Shard and the Gherkin in the distance. But you give us an alternative too, if you think that's going to cost a bit more than you want to pay, then consider going instead, or perhaps even as well, to the Sky Garden for one of the best views in London. It's at the top of the walkie-talkie building on Fenchurch Street. It's the highest public garden in the whole of London. And the handy advice we're given includes the idea that you have to book tickets in advance and the best time to go, well, sunset, of course. And don't forget to have one of their cocktails. The list is chock full of lots of other things to do in London. Foodie ideas, a whole section on free things. It features all the top museums too. And there's an intriguing section marked Unique Things. So here's a little flavour from that. Go to the Pet Cemetery in Hyde Park, which dates right back to 1881. And the sweet little story about how it all began is explained. There was a Maltese terrier, you see, who was so very much loved that when he died, his distraught owners persuaded the gatekeeper to allow them to bury him there. Actually, I've just realised the dog's name was Cherry, so possibly it was a female. Anyway, this was spotted by the then Duke of Cambridge, and when his dog died, a little Yorkshire Terrier, he had it buried there too. And so a pet cemetery grew up, and it was in operation for 22 years. And you can go along today and visit, and see all the tiny little headstones in neat rows. Mostly for cats and dogs, but in fact also for one or two exotic birds and a monkey or two. And the blog post quotes some of the sentiments expressed on the headstones. References to Dear Little Smut and Our Faithful Friend. Some of the posts are written by people Sydney commissioned, 
but the post she wrote herself says, One of my favourite things to do on an evening in London is to head to a traditional English pub for a pint or two and a delicious meal. She goes on to explain that the sort of food she has in mind is possibly not top of the foodies list, but it's her personal favourites. Things like fish and chips and bangers in mash, with a pint of English pale ale or some fruity cider. And she even goes on to explain that some of the favourite times she's spent have been in a pub on a rainy day in London, enjoying this kind of fare. So there we have it. Thank you to Sydney and her contributors on A World in Reach for their ideas. I looked then at a different London bucket list, one provided by a website whose title you might recognise if you're a regular listener, besides the obvious.net. You may remember they featured a few months back in a City Break Ideas episode, episode 12 I think it was, when they took us to Seville and to Pech in Hungary. Anyway, also on their website is a blog post entitled The Perfect London Bucket List, The Top 70 Things to Do. And if I read you that some of the top 10 items on that list, you'll get the flavour. Okay, the first three read, catch a cab, join a double-decker route and take a loop on the London Eye. They certainly do recommend many of London's big hitters, such as the London Eye, but they're quite up for things you might not have thought of. Other items in the top 10 include explore Chinatown, shop at Portobello Road, take a selfie in a red phone cabin and my personal favourite, get lost in Harrods. The list of 70 items subdivides into sections entitled, for example, food and drink, where you can find out about things like happy hour in London, where to eat the best scones or go to the best rooftop bars. And there are sections too for culture and sport and for the different areas of London. I had a good scout round and picked out just a few things to mention. One of my favourites was this one. Go on the number 159 bus route. Well, I was intrigued. I looked it up and sure enough, it's a cracking idea. You can get on a 159 in Parliament Square and it will take you up the Mall to Trafalgar Square, on to Piccadilly and finally to Marble Arch. So for the price of one bus ticket, you have indeed been treated to a tour of some of London's very most iconic sites. I also liked what they wrote about their idea of having your photo taken in a red phone booth. We know it sounds very cheesy, they write, but think of it as a cool vintage activity. And remember, you'll have a show-off picture afterwards. I also enjoyed a number of their tips which are, how can I put it, sort of London from a foreigner's perspective perhaps, seeking out the really very English things that you might wish to do. So, particularly for the benefit of foreign listeners, here goes. Have an English breakfast, they say. And if you don't know what that means, an explanation follows. You will get, actually they call it a sunny side up, which I think might be American English. So let's call it a fried egg, as we are here in Blighty. And along with that, you can expect, quote, sausage, fried bacon, a hash brown, baked beans, mushrooms, toasted bread, and a slice of white or black pudding. And of course, they say, you will also get tea or coffee and as much more hot buttered toast as you can eat. There's a little side comment about the history of all of this, how in centuries past the English country gentry saw breakfast as the most important meal of the day, because you needed lots of calories to fuel all that hunting and shooting and striding about your estate, and how then the idea gradually trickled down the class system until by the 1950s, quote, roughly half of the British population 
began their day by eating an English breakfast. They do also explain that it's much less popular today, too many calories for modern life really. But then there's the hot tip, look out for the all-day English breakfast, where you can have all of that, but served at a time of day, perhaps lunchtime or early evening, when you want a big meal. Good idea. And their other very English suggestion is to visit Lord's Cricket Ground in St John's Wood, the Cathedral of Cricket, as they refer to it. Again, helpful explanation provided, quote, If you are not English, it is very likely that you don't know anything about cricket. May I just say that you can be very English and still not know anything about cricket, even if you live with several cricket fans. Yes, I do speak from experience. Anyway, they say, look, go on a tour at Lord's and you'll have it all extremely well explained to you, and then you will understand it. I feel obliged to add a note that getting tickets for an actual match is likely to prove more of a problem. But yes, agreed, going on a tour of the ground, great idea. Okay then. So much for two ready-made bucket lists. Let's move on to other people that I turn to for help. I'm going to bring you a travel blogging couple, two historians and a diarist who runs a website all about London and tell you what they said when I asked them what they would put on a London bucket list. Something they'd really recommend you're doing, but which perhaps might be something I haven't already featured. And thanks in advance to all of them because they came up trumps. So let's start with Ellie and Stefan, old friends of the podcast, who run the www.barclaysquarebarbarian.com website. And yes, there are a few spelling dilemmas in that, but remember, the address will be given at the end. And their website is subheaded Musings. It's largely about London, although often also includes bits and pieces about what they get up to at weekends out of the city, and indeed on their time off work when they go on some pretty exotic travel much further afield. For today's purposes, I honed in on the London section, where you can find everything from restaurant reviews, which I think are a bit of a speciality of theirs, information about what's new in London, so upcoming exhibitions and so on, some pretty all-action stuff, such as, for example, open water swimming in Stoke Newington, who knew, and a visit to something called London in the Sky, which turns out to be a really quite unusual opportunity to eat while terrified. So their explanation reads as follows. There are two giant mobile cranes 30 metres up with chairs and tables somehow dangling on a chain from each extended arm. Eek. I think the idea is that you're sent up there and then a meal, brunch in this case, is served for you to enjoy. Check Ellie and Stefan's website if you want to know more about that. When I asked them for their ideas, back came the following as a reply. There are plenty of possibilities. One of the most fun things we've ever done in London was a ride on a London helicopter. A sort of sightseeing tour, I think. Stefan wrote, the tickets now cost over a £1,000. I think he means for two. So it's not really something we'd recommend for everyone. But it really was one of the best things we've ever done. And in fact, I went to Googling and there are cheaper options. I found half-hour helicopter trips over London for, I think it was £149, for example. So yes, it's never going to be cheap, it might be very expensive, but that was the thing that came to mind when I asked them what they would most recommend. However, they went on to say, the Sherlock Holmes escape room experience was much more affordable, it was loads of fun, and of course, it's quite a typically London thing to do. So there's a second idea, and then being quite foodie, 
of course, came the suggestion, quote, have a three-course Michelin-star meal with a glass of wine for £30 per person, or perhaps a little bit less. The trick, says Stefan, is to look for deals. They change all the time, so you've got to just go for it. But they say that in their experience, and they do travel quite a lot, that London is one of the very few cities that actually has any offers like this. And one example they gave of something they really enjoyed was a, quote, lavish tapas platter and two drinks for £20 a head. And their final tip reads, don't forget, day out of London ideas. And yes, I think if you're there for any length of time, or you're a visitor on a repeat visit, that certainly is a good idea. Get outside of central London, they say, perhaps even outside of London itself. Maybe look for a hiking or walking activity. Throw in a bit of culture, a lovely village to look round perhaps, somewhere with great architecture, or a castle, and preferably somewhere with good food. Yes, all good ideas. Thank you both. So let's move on to our two historians. The first one, Jessica, runs anhistorianabouttown.com and sums it up on the homepage, I think it is, as follows. My areas of interest are royal history, fashion history, UK history and ballet history. She writes some quite long history posts, I think at least every week. There are shorter posts known as History Bite. And as she says, quote, you will find museum exhibitions, my historic travels, favourite historical figures and events, academic and popular history book recommendations, and more. Again, there's lots and lots on there, but I honed in on the London section, of course. And I found the sentence, London has long been my favourite city. It is so rich in history and culture. No matter what your budget is, you can plan an incredible day or days. And our historian about town goes on to explain that there are two particular areas she always recommends when asked, and so she's written us a few notes on those. And the first one is Covent Garden. You may recall I feature that in episode 11 of the London series, but there are bits and pieces here that I certainly did not think about. Jessica is a trained ballet dancer, she's also a historian, so Covent Garden, combining the two, has got to have a special place in her heart. Yes, she says, it is quite touristy, but look beyond that at the history. Did you know, for example, that there has been a settlement there for nearly a thousand years? Did you know where the name came from? Covent Garden originally was Convent Garden. So you can get an idea of the early history of the area just from that. In the 18th and 19th centuries, though, it went downhill rapidly and was known as the Red Light District of London, featuring, as Jessica puts it, countless bawdy houses and prostitutes. And that it helps to explain why still today there are notable theatres in the area, the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, for example, and of course the Royal Opera House. Covent Garden Market has a history too, dating right back to 1828 when the Duke of Bedford had it designed. Today, of course, something for everyone there, and as Jessica points out, you don't have to spend any money to visit, you can always just wander through although she personally, she says, would always, quote, recommend a cuppa from Wittards. Of course, you will want to see the Royal Opera House. The third one on that site, the first two burnt down. This one dates from 1858. But rather than just noting it or photographing it and moving on, consider the following ideas. See if you can get cheap tickets to productions. There might be some for as little as £5. I think that's probably the last minute leftover one. So yes, that's a really good tip. And also, says Jessica, 
do the backstage tour if you possibly can, because you'll get to see the theatre, tour the lighting and the props and costume areas, maybe even see the Royal Ballet or the Royal Opera in rehearsal. Connected to the Royal Opera House, a five-minute walk away, in fact, at 118 Long Acre, you will see one of those blue English heritage plaques put up in memory of Dame Margot Fontaine. So that's a must, certainly, for ballet fans. Perhaps you remember her or have seen film of her wonderful dancing, often partnered by Rudolf Nureyev. I think those two must have been the 20th century's most famous ballet partnership. And, as Jessica comments, Margot Fontaine was the only prima ballerina assoluta in the Royal Ballet's history. And the second area picked out for us is Westminster. OK, a bit of an obvious choice, says Jessica, but that's for a good reason. There is so much to see. She seems to be a bit so-so about the idea of doing a tour of Westminster Abbey. Yes, definitely to recommend, she says, but it can be very crowded. However, don't miss out on going into the Parliament buildings. Take a tour and you will get to visit Westminster Hall. That's the oldest existing part of the palace. Absolutely steeped in history. You may remember that from the episodes I did on Westminster earlier in the series. But just as a reminder, this hall has seen the coronation feasts of medieval English kings. It's the place where Charles I was tried and sentenced to death. More recently, it's the site of choice for our most distinguished visitors. Think, for example, Barack Obama if they're going to be given the privilege of addressing both the House of Commons and the House of Lords all at once, that being a conveniently large space where they can all fit in. But also, as part of your tour, you will be taken to the House of Commons and the House of Lords. You can sit in the public galleries when there's a debate going on. You can stand, perhaps have your photograph taken in the impressive central lobby. If you've ever seen reports from Parliament on British television, you will certainly have seen that on camera. And even then you're not finished because you should go out across the street from the House of Lords and find the Jewel Tower. That's jewel as in precious stone rather than as in sword fight because it was originally built to store the most precious jewels in the kingdom. They of course now being a bit more safely tucked away at the Tower of London. Built in the 14th century, it's one of the three surviving parts of the original Palace of Westminster and it's full of intriguing things to look at. You can, for example, see the signed confession of Guy Fawkes, who, after torture, admitted that he had tried to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Actually, it's gorier than that. They've got two signatures, one before he was tortured and one afterwards, and you only have to look at that wobbly, pathetic writing and the second version for an insight into what they had done to him. So, lots and lots of ideas from an historian about town. Thank you, Jessica, very much. And moving on to someone else, Jack in this case, who also runs a London history website, this one being called livinglondonhistory.com. And here's how he introduces himself and his website. I'm Jack. I grew up in Essex and London has always been a fascinating and exhilarating place to me. I love history. Always have done, always will. I'm a big fan of museums and books, but even more so, I'm interested in the tangible, livable and breathable history that we are surrounded by as we go about our everyday lives. And I wanted to start this blog so that I can share my journey discovering London's fascinating and vibrant past by walking its bustling grand streets, diving down its mysterious alleyways and strolling along the banks of the Thames. I believe that the city itself 
is the greatest and most interesting museum of all. So, if any of that's your thing, go check out the website where you will find self-guided walking tours, ideas for historical sites to visit, lots of hidden gems, all sorts of goodies to burrow about in. When I asked Jack what his recommendation would be for a bucket list type activity in London, he said, why not walk the old Roman medieval walls of London? You can do a shortish walk from the Tower of London. It'll take a morning or perhaps an afternoon. You'll see the ruins of the walls and you'll get a sense of just how much the city has changed. I think you'll be surprised how much of the wall is left, he said. There's even one section down in a car park. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the idea, but please do remember that it's all there to be downloaded on his website. A self-guided walk of the whole route. So the opening to this post reads, No one is quite sure why the Romans decided to build a wall around what was then known as Londinium. Nevertheless, in 200 AD, the wall was built and was one of the largest construction projects in Roman Britain. It was then added to, maintained and enhanced over the medieval and Tudor periods. So, if that whets your appetite, do go on the walk. It's roughly four kilometres long, starts at the Tower of London, finishes at Blackfriars Station, and will take you past Tower Hill, Bishopsgate, Aldgate, Cripplegate and Newgate. And yes, there is a map provided. The route, says Jack, follows as much as possible the route of the old wall and along the way you'll find crumbling medieval towers, great imposing walls and ruins in some surprising places. Things you will see include a statue of a Roman emperor, although please be informed, says Jack, that this was actually added in the 1980s. Anyway, it looks nice and adds to the atmosphere. You will also see loopholes through which medieval archers used to fire their arrows. How exciting is that? You'll see the site of a building where Geoffrey Chaucer once lived. You will have pointed out to you the spot where the heads of newly executed criminals were displayed. And you will learn all sorts of interesting things. How, for example, to tell which are the original Roman sections of the wall and which are the bits which were added afterwards. There are lots of interesting little snippets about the derivation of the names you'll find too. Why is one part called Houndsditch and another Cripplegate? You can certainly have a guess. You might be right in the Houndstitch case. As for Ludgate, I don't think you'll ever guess that. You'll have to go onto the website to find out. As indeed you will need to if you want to know why you shouldn't miss Bay 53 in the London Wall car park. So, many thanks to Jack. That's an idea I never even thought of covering. Certainly should have done. And it has the merits of being very, very doable. Not to mention also free. All you have to do is go onto the website and locate the self-guided walk I've been describing. Please know too that there are other self-guided walks and indeed all sorts of other goodies. And next up, another really good London website, which includes lots of history and in fact lots of other things too. And that's www.diaryofalondoness.com. Its subheading reads London Arts, Culture and Lifestyle Guide and here's Scarlett in the introduction telling us what to expect. Walk with me through the streets of London and beyond and experience what it's like to live in the world's culture capital. There are two main sections, London blog, with subsections like art and culture, London history, secret London, royal London. And there's also a London diary telling you what's on this month. 
giving you a heads up for exhibitions, theatre, opera, music, dance, all sorts of things. Naturally, I was drawn to the London History section, where I found lots of intriguing posts, quite, if I may say so, in the City Break style. So, exactly the history you want to know if you're going somewhere on a visit. There's a whole series of those called Dead Famous Londoners. There's an intriguing sounding one called Royal Love Affairs, where the British royals met their mistresses and lovers. So, plenty of ideas, and indeed places, to go and explore. When I asked Scarlett for her contribution to my bucket list, back came the idea, how about Oscar Wilde's London? Something on all the places in London connected with him. That sounds intriguing, I thought. Yes, please. So, thanks to Scarlett for this. She suggests starting your Oscar Wilde tour of London in Paddington, at St James's Church, in fact where Oscar Wilde married his sweetheart, Constance Lloyd, in 1884. There's a plaque at the east end of the church commemorating this, and Scarlett provides a little bit of historical detail. The bride, she says, wore a satin yellow gown, which Wilde himself had helped design, and a saffron veil, and she carried a bouquet of lilies. The dapper groom wore a frock coat. If you want to see the house where Oscar lived, that would be 34 Tite Street, T-I-T-E, in Chelsea. If you do go there, have a quick look at number 58 too and pause to think that that's where the judge, who would eventually sentence Oscar for gross indecency, lived. Oscar Wilde, of course, was very much a man about town, so there were lots of shops and restaurants connected to him. Scarlett mentions two shops which were covered in the shopping episode a few weeks ago, namely Hatchards, London's oldest bookshop. Oscar was an avid reader, so he was there quite frequently and the Burlington Arcade, where he used to go to buy the carnations for his buttonhole that he was so fond of wearing. You may know that Oscar referred to cigarettes as, quote, the perfect type of a perfect pleasure, and he bought his at James F. Fox, a place you can still visit today, and if you go downstairs, you will find a little museum which has some wild mementos in it, including an unpaid bill. Perhaps of all the shops he frequented and loved, Liberty's was the top favourite. Wilde himself apparently said, Liberty is the chosen resort of the artistic shopper. The other thing which Wilde loved to do in London was eating out. As on most topics, he had something to say about that, as Scarlett tells us, quote, A man who can dominate a London dinner table can dominate the world. I think that might be less true in 2021 than it was at the time. One of his favourite restaurants was Kettner's, London's oldest French restaurant, in Soho, still there today, a place to which he would withdraw for a glass of bubbly in the company of young men. He was also a fan of the Café Royale on Piccadilly, that's where he first met Lord Alfred Douglas, the most famous of his lovers, not least because it was that affair that led to Wilde's eventual downfall, and if you go to the Café Royale today, you will find that they have renamed the bar the Oscar Wilde Bar. He was also a big fan of the Savoy Hotel, somewhere to eat, somewhere where we know he spent a staggering amount on wine, and somewhere where he would sometimes rent out a room and disappear in the company of one of his young men. This hotel too played a part in his downfall, as Scarlett explains. Unfortunately for the author, one chambermaid would go on to provide a damning testimony of his many illicit rendezvous. We know too that he spent time at the Langham Hotel, in Langham Place, just off Oxford Street. We know, for example, that he once dined there in some quite illustrious company. There was J.M. Stoddart, an American publisher, 
Oscar Wilde himself, and someone who wasn't well known then, but certainly went on to be so, Arthur Conan Doyle. This meal in 1889 led eventually to the publication of The Picture of Dorian Gray, so Wilde's novel, and Conan Doyle's The Sign of Four. There are two or three other places which Scarlett mentions which have more to do with Wilde's downfall years. For example, the Courthouse Hotel just opposite Liberty's. In Wilde's day, that was the Marlborough Street Magistrates' Court. The location for the libel case against him, brought by Alfred Douglas's father, the Marquis of Queensbury. If you go into the Silk Restaurant in the Courthouse Hotel, you will be able to see the original dock and witness stand from the trial. Then there is the Cadogan Hotel, where in room 118, Wilde was arrested on the 6th of April 1895, and in Covent Garden, the Bow Street Magistrates, where he spent the first night after his arrest, and which is now a museum. And finally, Platform 10 at Clapham Junction Station. That was the location for a very humiliating scene after his arrest. He was standing handcuffed and in prison attire on that platform, when members of the public spat at him and hurled abuse, something he wrote movingly about in his work De Profundis, one of the pieces of his work still most read today. So the story ends gloomily, but the last sentence in Scarlett's report does end a little bit more positively. Quote, A rainbow plaque at Clapham Junction now honours the poet, writer, wit and icon, something, no doubt, which would have pleased him very, very much. So yes, very much a tale of times and how they change. But what an interesting idea for a wander round London with something to focus on. So thanks very much to Scarlett for that and indeed to everyone who's contributed and given me such a wide variety of ideas to put before you. I did want, after all those wonderful ideas from other people, to contribute one idea of my own, but what to choose. I wanted it to be something I haven't done yet, something which I'd really like to do, And the more I thought about it, the more I kept coming back to the idea of having afternoon tea at Fortnum and Mason's. I do really fancy that. And of course, as with so many other good visiting ideas, a little bit of research up front will make it more enjoyable. So I searched out a book called, what else, Tea at Fortnum and Mason, written by Emma Marsden, and discovered all sorts of things about the origins of tea, for example. Stories about which date back in some cases to the 2700s BC, but which for our purposes start in the year 1707, when one Hugh Mason, who owned a livery stables, and William Fortnum, a royal footman, got together and set up a business known, of course, as Fortnum and Masons. They were going to be grocers and tea merchants. This is what Emma Marsden writes about that. Tea was the commodity on which the two young men built their dreams and grew their business. And they were fortunate in that William Fortnum had family connections with the East India Company, so ready access to those leaves which were soon to become the national drink. A century and a half later, as Emma Marsden goes on to explain, During the long and illustrious reign of Queen Victoria, the company received the first of its many royal warrants. On the 30th of August, 1867, the company was appointed grocers and tea dealers to her son, Prince Albert, HRH, the Duke of Edinburgh. Today, the world-famous store continues to hold a royal warrant for the Queen, for grocers and provisions merchants, and as tea merchants and grocers to the Prince of Wales. 
It's certainly not just an in inverted commas shop though, because Fortnum and Mason employ their own tea blenders, who produce many different varieties from, quote, aromatic teas such as Earl Grey and Lapsang Souchong, strong teas like the rich and malty Assam and the invigorating breakfast blend, or light and delicate ones such as Ceylon Orange Pico. And so, of course, with all that in its history, it's no surprise that Fortnum and Mason has become one of the places in London to take afternoon tea. Again, Emma Marsden's book is quite helpful on that. Quote, we have Anna, 7th Duchess of Bedford, 1788-1861, to thank for the ritual of afternoon tea, for it was she who created this delightful break in the day. And Emma Marsden goes on to explain then that this lady was one of Queen Victoria's ladies-in-waiting, who found the gap between the substantial breakfast which was served at the palace and the great dinner in the evening quite difficult to fill, given that only a very light lunch was served. So she hit on the idea of asking one of the servants to bring her tea and cakes in the afternoon. She enjoyed this very much, kept doing it, other people copied the idea, and before long, quote, it is thought to have spread quickly through the grand houses surrounding St. James's Palace, and also to Fortnum and Mason's Piccadilly store. There's a wonderful paragraph after that, listing all the accoutrements you will need to serve afternoon tea properly, a teapot of course, but also a separate metal pot, so you can top up with more boiling water, a milk jug, of course, but also a bowl of lemon slices, individual strainers, holders to put them on, china cups and saucers to drink it out of, silver teaspoons, at least in the Duchess of Bedford's day, also a china bowl for tea dregs, another china bowl plus sugar tongs for sugar cubes, butter dishes, a bowl for the clotted cream, a separate bowl for the jam, napkins, side plates, small dainty knives and forks. So all of that gives you a little bit of a flavour of the occasion, as does indeed the menu. We are told that there are four parts to your afternoon tea, if properly served, and they are, quote, extraordinary tea, fresh baked cakes, still warm scones, and an array of freshly prepared sandwiches. And let me tell you, they are not any old sandwiches. They are finger sandwiches. And if you're thinking, I don't know, ham, cheese, egg, yes, you are correct, but this is how the menu puts it. Suffolk cured ham with piccalilli, leg bar blue hen's egg mayonnaise with watercress, and cucumber with mint cream cheese. As for the scones, plain and fruit, of course, served with Fortnum and Mason strawberry preserve, and, or possibly or, I'm not sure, lemon curd and clotted cream. And then, too, a range of delicious patisserie inspired, quote, by seasonal ingredients, each one honed to perfection over time by our chefs. I'm envisaging one of those three-tiered silver things where you have the sandwiches on the bottom and the scones in the middle and the cakes up top. I notice too that you can buy a book called Time for Tea, which is billed as an entertaining guide to tea and a collection of recipes from Fortnum and Mason. There's a section on how there are different versions of the tea. You can have a savoury version or a high tea version. And my absolute favourite part a section entitled The Etiquette of Tea at Home. Excepting, I suppose, that not everybody's going to be at Fortnum and Mason's every day for all of this, so if you want to reproduce it at home, there are five golden rules that you really must stick to. And let me read you all five titles, because they are great. How to hold the cup. Stirring a cup of tea. How to eat a scone. Crust or no crust. And when to take your tea. 
On, for example, stirring a cup of tea, it says, It is best to move the spoon gently back and forth from front to back, rather than round and round, and to avoid clinking the side of the cup. But actually there is a little hint here and there that they don't take themselves too ridiculously seriously, because I'll just read the section then labelled How to Hold the Cup. Hold the handle between your thumb and fingers, rather than curling your fingers through the handle. Don't extend a little finger unless auditioning for the part of Mrs. Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. So there we go, that's my idea, which I'm going to leave on my own personal bucket list until achieved. I perhaps ought to add that there are, of course, other afternoon tea options available in London. And a very enjoyable one I did go on once to celebrate my daughter's graduation from London University was afternoon tea on a riverboat, past all the sights and to the accompaniment of a little jazz band in the corner. And yes, we did get the three-layered silver contraption, without which no afternoon tea seems to me to be complete. Anyway, that is it for today's episode. It's also it for the London series. I've got some plans for the next few episodes, which are slightly different from anything I've done before. I keep thinking that even though we've got, for example, 19 episodes on Florence, I have not done with Florence. And so I'm going to have a little phase of supplementary episodes on some of the cities that I've covered. They will be on aspects that I didn't get to first time round, and they're going to be quite different from the episodes to date because they're going to consist of interviews. So as a for instance, on Florence, I've got lined up an episode with somebody from the Florence Tourist Office who's going to explain to us a little bit more about all the Dante memorabilia, monuments, places of interest, etc. in the city. And a second one with somebody from a tour company who runs tours of historical interest outside of the city. So again, taking us to places that I never got to. So I hope you'll listen out for some of those. And then in the fullness of time, somewhere in the autumn, I'll be starting the new City Break series, which is going to be on that beautiful, gorgeous, lovely city of Edinburgh, in which I have just spent a very enjoyable week-long research trip. And then I'm hoping with fingers and everything else crossed that after that, I'll be able to venture outside Britain for the series after that. The once a month City Break ideas are going to continue too. That's actually on the cards for next week. So I will be featuring three more travel blogs and sharing ideas from them on cities to visit. Enough. I have talked for long enough and you have been very patient. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for joining me today and I hope to have the pleasure of your company again in the not too distant future. Goodbye. Goodbye.